0: It's just kind of crazy looking back, like it's one of those like sliding doors moments. The people in the same room as us in that office in Cambridge were the founders of Reddit. So it was like Reddit and Kiko were started in the same room. And I would have never seen that if I would not kind of sent this borderline aggressive email to them. I'm Jim Huffman
1: and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? In this episode, I speak with Richard White. Now Richard has over a decade of entrepreneurship experience from founding UserVoice to Fathom. He takes us through his journey from being a part of the very first Y Combinator batch in Cambridge way back in 2005. He was actually in the same group as founders from Reddit, Dropbox, and Twitch then we get to his latest startup, which is Fathom. It's a Zoom app, which essentially is like having a personal note taker on every call with you. And his traction is really impressive. We talk about his journey, fundraising, how to build a SaaS, and how to actually onboard people the right way. And then how one cold email to Justin Kahn from Twitch changed everything and got him into startups. So if you're at all interested in how to build a SaaS or a startup or advice on fundraising when you don't know anybody, you'll really enjoy today's episode. All right, today I have Richard White on the podcast and his background is extremely impressive from being a part of Y Combinator two times now and then also with a with startup that he has raised $9 million for and then has exited as CEO, but his most current product that he has is something that is near and dear to my heart, which is making Zoom meetings much more bearable and efficient in addition to other online modes of communication. But uh, Richard, excited to have you on today.
0: Jim, thanks for having me. Of course. So
1: I was going through your bio, and there's some interesting stuff in there. And I wanted to start with one kind of question because it caught my attention. Can you talk talk to me about how one cold email to Justin Kahn potentially change your professional career?
0: Sure. Yeah. So I'm originally from North Carolina. I was originally kind of a computer science grad, but I really wanted to break into product design. And, you know, I remember working at a, a small software company in North Carolina and, you know, I had some ideas for projects I wanted to work on. And my buddy brought me like a tech crunch post of someone building this product I wanted to build. And I was like, oh, I really wanted to, you know, damn it, someone beat me to it. Right. And I went and played with the product and it was actually technically like really ahead of its time, but its design was actually pretty bad. <laughs> and that was the thing I was trying to get better at. And so I literally just kind of, I don't remember how I got their email. I think it was like linked to from the website or somewhere. I dug through and found the founders who were Justin Collum and Emmett Shear who went on to do Twitch. This is their startup, Kiko, before that. And just e- cold emailed them. And I was literally, so sole email, email of like, your product's technically really impressive, but your, yeah, your design and your UX is a dumpster fire. And then I, and then I like basically finished with like, but I finished with like, I would love to help you solve that. And it, it's funny because years, you know, so that actually led to me working on that team. But, you know, it was funny to me years later, they told me we didn't really know what to make of this, but we were just kind of sure. I don't, you know, we were in this kind of like, yes, and kind of mentality. And so honestly, yeah, you're right. That kind of like completely changed the trajectory of my career. You know, I don't know, I ended up like, you know working out of the Y Combinator office with those guys who had gone through the this was in the first batch of Y Combinator so there was a it was an office in in Cambridge Massachusetts the company that we were working on with Justin that's working on Justin and Emmett uh, as their kind of like first employee we weren't super successful we did decently well and we ended up selling that company on eBay for a quarter million dollars not to eBay but on eBay But, you know, it it got me connected with, I think most of the folks I know today, you know, I've been in San Francisco about 15 years, all came through that experience. And it's just kind of crazy looking back, like it's one of those like sliding doors moments. You know, the the people, you know, in the same room as us in that office in Cambridge were the founders of Reddit. So it was like Reddit and Kiko were started in the same room. And I would never seen that if I'd not kind of sent this borderline like aggressive email (laughs) to them, but then kind of helped them out really for free for a number of months and then for almost near free after that.
1: There's a lot to learn from that. One, it's you have this idea and you see someone else doing it. It's not like, oh, crap. Okay, on to the next thing. And you're like, no, let me, let me jump in on this. But then you're scrappy enough to find the email address. I like Not to nerd out on like cold email outreach too much, but did you say dumpster fire in the email? Because I feel like that's a trigger <laughs> word that I love.
0: <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. This was 15 years ago. I don't think it was at vogue. but I said something that was like, it's not very good it's very bad. I definitely told them that it was like bad. And I don't remember the words I used, but they were aggressive.
1: That's awesome. And I think if I'm in their shoes, when you're a founder trying to grow something, you you just need help. You want to build this rock star team. So if somebody's proactively reaching out to you, wanting to help, it's like, all right, let's give them a shot. So that was enough to crack the door open for you to get that opportunity. But yeah, there, there's a lot to learn from that. Do you remember the subject line? And then I'll stop asking cold email
0: questions. I, I actually don't. I wish I did. That's a great question. I've got the screenshot somewhere in like an old slide deck I should look it up. But yeah, I, I think most of, you know, one of my, I think, top lessons learned of my career is just uh, like to try to join. Like when you find someone who's like-minded, try to either join what they're doing or fold them into what you're doing. After Kiko, I did this like open source project for a while. And it was like one of the top five open source projects for Ruby on Rails for a while. And all I did was the reverse, where I just listened on the internet for anyone complaining about my, the open source thing I was working on. And I'd reach out to them and be like, do you want to come like work on it and, you know, address the problems you mentioned? And like, I, I think I can look at a lot of my successes and failure in my career. And most of my successes are when I joined something or was inclusive. and Most of my like struggles were when I was like, no, no, I'm going to go this alone.
1: Man, that's a lot to learn there. I think the fact that you also worked on it for free is a big tell, but that's really good advice on finding people that are like minded because it's funny when you start a company, you're like, oh, I need a designer. You like say these certain slots and roles that you need. But the truth is, for the long term, you need people that have that same vision and mission that you're going down the same path, which sounds very like woo woo and warm and fuzzy. But man, it is so important when you're trying to like create something out of nothing.
0: Yeah, finding, a lot, finding someone else who's as passionate and nearly as passionate about that same problem space is probably one of the hardest things about finding co-founders,
1: right? For sure. That, yeah, that could be a whole podcast in itself. So, <laughs> you know, one thing, so for people that don't know Y Combinator, Startup Accelerator, starting in Boston, then went to San Francisco. I mean, the reputation is just insane. The alumni that have come out of there from Airbnb and Stripe to Reddit is, is really impressive. And so you've been a part of it, two times now, like, can you talk through any stories that speak to the impact or value you get from being a part of YC?
0: I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I think Y Combinator originally, in, in some ways, was solving for this, this problem. The problem was you'd have a lot of typically like younger folks or not, right? But they had a lot of ex- domain experience in there where they're trying to build a product, right? But a big part of surviving as a startup was fundraising. And this fundraising thing is almost like, a, it's almost like a mini game inside of a video game, right? It's like this side quest you have to do, or not have to do, but if you, you do it, that has like completely different mechanics than actually building the company. And so I think what Y Combinator kind of originally sussed out was like, there's a lot of smart folks that know how to build good products and have no idea how to like hack or play this fundraising game. Partially because all the fundraising game historically was a little bit of one of these classic like social proof problems. Where you almost need to like do a bunch of stuff to get the, to get the clout or the reputation to be able to go raise money, right? And so originally, I think it was pretty successful in that it taught a lot of people how to raise money effectively, taught them how to play the mini game, and then over time now it's almost become you know you're you're like a, a cohort of people going through college, right? And it's like you're you're all going through something at the same time. So I think today the two biggest values it has is like you know to your one point like when you're looking for co-founders, you're looking for people that are in the arena that want to do it, that are passionate in your project. But you also just need people to kind of compete with and learn from that are building companies at the same time. With Fathom, my recent company we started last year, even though you know I first went, was working with Y Combinator folks like 15 years ago, and I know lots of them. Part of the reason we joined Y Combinator this past fall was because most of my peer cohort has like gone on now to be like VCs or running really large companies. And I thought it'd be super valuable to me to have peers that are kind of in the arena at the same time. Because the tactics and strategies you use to get startups off the ground constantly change and evolve, right? And it's nice to have a, you know, collection of some of the smartest people doing startups kind of as your peers. And the other part of the value is in some ways why Commander acts like a union where they kind of can kind of collectively bargain for things. For example, you know, there's a whole database of investors and it says which investors are good, which investors are bad. And if investors kind of like yank everyone's chain, they get rated as such. And then people kind of move away from them. So it's shifted the power dynamic quite a bit in terms of, you know, it used to be 10, 15 years, you'd walk into an investor office and they'd be like, who the hell are you? And you can give me time of day. And it's kind of rude. And now you have this investing climate that's super friendly to founders. And I think part of it is because we've, you know, kind of figured out this reputational systems for Silicon Valley or for startups. So there's a bunch of other reasons. I think if you're if you know if it's your first time, they teach you a lot of the other skills you don't have, right? I think as a founder, you need to be very multidimensional. You really need to know a little bit about every discipline in your company, you don't have to be an expert in it, but you really need to understand a little bit. And it does a good job of kind of bootstrapping your knowledge of like, here's what marketing is like, here's what sales is like, here's what go to market looks like, here's what product building looks like, right? So, you know, no matter what your background is, you can go at least get the 101 to 401 classes. And what is all the other disciplines look like? Because you need to know those decently well to be able to hire for them.
1: That, that's really good insight. And I mean, you're. we'll get into Fathom, and, which is a part of YC. What advice would you give to people that are trying to get in? How do you get noticed? Because it's got to be so competitive to be one of those startups that gets selected.
0: I mean, I think, yeah, I think they, they get, I don't know their numbers. They get thousands and thousands of applicants every year. And, you know, they've increased their uh, the class sizes pretty significantly now. I think in our batch, there's 350 companies which is huge. In the first batch, there was like eight, right? Um, but I think, it, I think their admissions rate is still the same and it's like low single-digit percentages. You know, honestly, I think that the biggest thing is you really need to, you don't necessarily have to have a built product, right? That that's helpful. They're really looking at like team. Do you have the team? Do you have enough of the right people to go do the thing? But really, do you exhibit that you really understand the problem space? Do you really understand the problem you're solving and who you're solving it for? Um, And so I think you know the best advice I could have would be do a decent amount of customer development before applying to Y Combinator. You know, ideally you're applying. We applied with Fathom with a prototype and a lot of market research. Right? We did market research—a fancy way of saying I like talked to hundreds of people on Zoom that were going to be our target buyer. Right? You know, and and that allowed us to I think speak very credibly during our interview process and you know not get rattled by them trying to like knock you off course. Be like, no, no, I've talked to 200 people about this. I'm reasonably confident the answer is this, but it could change. But as it stands today, this is probably the answer.
1: No, that's really helpful. And actually, let's get into Fathom. So for people that don't know, how would you pitch it to someone like me that lives on Zoom all day? What, What is Fathom?
0: Fathom is basically a free app for Zoom that is trying to make sure you don't have to talk to someone and take notes at the same time. I found, you know, going back to that customer research that I did, I was actually doing customer research for a different product and doing a bunch of Zoom meetings. That is one of the most painful things, stressful things about being on Zoom is I'm talking to someone, I only have 30 minutes with them and then they kind of potentially disappear forever, right? Or it's hard to get them back on the line. And so like, I have to be very, very present and I'm also trying to talk to them and I'm also trying to like bang out notes or handwrite notes while I'm going. And so we're a free app that records, transcribes and highlights the key moments of your call so that you can kind of just lean back and have a conversation and we'll either auto-generate notes or you can kind of like time shift and write your notes after the call.
1: Okay. That sounds magical. Will you go a step further? Like, so I have a growth marketing agency. We do, we'll say it's like a very important strategy call for the holiday season with an e-commerce client. How could I use this? Should I be thinking of this as, oh, my team, they could be using this tool. Then afterwards, it's minimizing what they have to do for note taking. It's just using Fathom to get the transcript or get those highlights. And then they're kind of editing it. Or is it like email to you afterwards? How do you find those key highlights from a meeting?
0: Yeah, so one of the things we we realized is that no one wants to dig through a recording afterwards and like edit it out, right? Like I've already done the meeting, I don't want to do it again. And so one of the things we do is we give you kind of what looks like a, it's like a, almost like a soundboard, right? Or like a DJ, you know, the DJs have their little buttons, they, they push, right? Show what a DJ I am here. And so what we do is we give you kind of a little interface when you're on the call and it has specific things on it, like insight or positive moment or, you know, product feedback, or, you know, objection, whatnot. And when you hear something important, you just click on one of those buttons. And then the Fathom system figures out, like, when did that part of the conversation start? and When does it end? And then it kind of tags that whole section with that kind of label. And what we've kind of found that's nice is that people are only, like, marking about 15% of their calls as noteworthy, right? And so that's why none of us want to go back afterwards and, like, re-tease through a call that's 30 minutes or an hour, an hour and a half, and find all the moments that mattered. And so what you get, you get after the call and unlike a lot of other, like even zoom cloud recording, it takes like sometimes 30 minutes to an hour to get the recording with fathom. We give you the recording instantly within about five seconds of the call ending. You've got access to that recording. You can jump directly to those highlighted moments. You can review them. You can type up a note. We'll actually give you like a little share link for each highlight. So if you, if you had a two minute discussion about something and with the client you're like, Hey, we want to, you know, share this internally with someone or share with the client. You could send the entire recording. You could send them just individual snippets of the call. But our entire goal is like, it's crazy to me that we we do this process where we hurriedly type notes while on the call, we like try to clean them afterwards. And then two weeks later, no one really remembers the important nuance, right? And certainly people that weren't on the call don't get that nuance, right? I use it a lot. And I think one of our best use cases is like sales calls, research calls, anything with a customer, right? And you're trying to communicate internally what this person said, Here was their technical challenge or here was their like really interesting insight. Hearing that person say it, like sharing that with, you know, with a colleague or, you know, you know, putting that in your YC interview or sharing that with an investor just carries so much more weight than your notes that say, this person was excited about this, this person struggled with this, right? And so that's, that's what we're trying to enable.
1: I love the idea of being able to take those snippets or clips from a call. Because for us, it's like we have this really great strategy session on how to like update the design of a site. But then like, as we maybe go back to a designer that wasn't on the call, I feel like I'm a caveman sometimes trying to like translate that. And it would yep. be so much easier if you're like, here's this. Because we can give Zoom recordings, but it's like, all right, let me find the exact moment. And there's a lot of steps in that process. Um, yeah, the,
0: ga- the game of telephone is a, is a terrible game right? Like trying to, and it, it's kind of fun. We, cause we do this in real time. We're also doing, we're also doing sharing in real time. So we actually, like I have a button on mine that says tech question. And so if I'm on a customer call, I get a tech question. I click that button and actually within about 15 seconds of the customer asking the question, the video of them asking the questions in my engineering Slack channel, and my engineers can watch that question actually message me and answer before I get off the call. So we're actually trying to do not only this, not only kill the game of telephone, but also make this like real time collaboration with people that aren't necessarily on the zoom call, because everyone hates putting all their technical resources right on every single call when they're only needed for two minutes of it or none.
1: Oh, it's so, it's such a waste of our time. We've been guilty of that. And it's like, sorry, you're on that 60 minute call where we needed you for the last two minutes.
0: Yeah, exactly. They, they yeah. Turns out technical resources love that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I do like that flex as far as, you know, a technical question during the call, it automatically goes to Slack. You can have a response immediately. Cause for us, we're always trying to have like white glove service. So that that's pretty magical. Can you speak to the size of Fathom, like how old you are, just so people can understand where you're at in your company life cycle?
0: Yeah. Uh, so we, we, we've we been doing Fathom for about a year. Though we kind of, you know, UserVoice, I started the company previous to this, you know, it was like me and a few folks scrapping around, right? And so we, you know, Fathom started with five of us, my like four top engineers from UserVoice and myself. So, you know, we've been doing this for a year, but it's been a very high output year there's nine of us now in total there's six engineers myself and then two folks in kind of sales and cs and yeah we just launched literally about well, let's see end of july so it's been about four months almost exactly uh on the new zoom app marketplace but we're already you know already have pretty good traction we've got about 80 i think now about eighty five thousand people on the wait list and we're kind of carefully curating who gets access to the the app and obviously we we want to make sure everyone gets a good experience so we don't want to dump Eighty thousand people on us, our team of nine to support. So, yeah, and we just—I think tomorrow's the cutoff date. But it looks like we're—you're familiar with like G two, the review site. We're going to be a, a high perfor- in the high performer category. It's our first quarter in existence, which is pretty awesome. So, not only do we have a lot of users, we have I think a very passionate group of of users that I'd consider advocates and and colleagues almost as much as users at this point.
1: Yeah, for people who don't know, G2 Crowd is like the Amazon reviews for software and B2B. So having a good brand there and one that with a lot of volume of reviews is very important. So there's like for me as someone looking at the outside, I see two really exciting things like I love companies that jump on this wave of an industry that's just going to get bigger and bigger. So it's like remote work is not going anywhere. It's going to get bigger and bigger and Zoom is a big part of that. So you're part of the like kind of remote work movement. The second is I do love businesses that can bolt on to a platform or marketplace that is also going up into the right like an equivalent is like being a Shopify app in the early days. Those things are doing really well, right? And so as Zoom's really pushing their marketplace, like you're able to be one of like the top players there. They also have invested in you all, correct? They have like a a fund that they invest in. Is that correct?
0: Correct, yes.
1: And can you talk through like, where are you guys at with fundraising right now?
0: Well, it's funny you mentioned that because we haven't announced anything yet. So I can't necessarily, my PR person would probably kill me if I like, We're I think we're pitching press on it right now. (laughs) <laughs> uh, if I linked it here, but we've, you know, I, I could tell you kind of at the high level, we've fundraising has changed a lot over the last 10, 15 years, too, right? You know, with user voice, we did like a, you know, we went out 800K seed round and we, most of that was one, it was basically all one firm, right? And, you know, that one firm can sat on our board and it was a, multi-week process, right? Probably a six to eight week process with diligence and paperwork and all that sort of stuff. For Fathom, you know, now the state of the art for fundraising is you just basically, you have these thing called safe notes. Uh, it's, it's actually one of the things that YC innovated and created. And it's a standard way to basically take investor money uh, for kind of the promise of adding them to your cap table once you do a proper like price round is what they call it. Again, this is like fundraising mini game kind of uh, inside baseball but what's nice about this is it allows you to not have to do this big heavyweight process you can do a 30 minute call with someone and take down a 50k check, 25k check from an angel and stuff like that. So actually been unique for fathom is we've been almost consistently fundraising throughout our throughout the last year and basically at every little inflection point, every milestone we we kind of use that as a as a opportunity to raise more money, right? And Obviously you can imagine like we launch, you know, we launch, we have an alpha, right? I go, you can kind of go to friends and family. We got into Y Combinator. That's a milestone. Let's go like raise some money ahead of that. We got the demo day with Y Combinator and got included and built up a partnership with zoom that got us into this, you know, the zoom app marketplace. That's a milestone. We can raise money on that we've launched and now we're in the app store. And we're, actually, I think we're number one half of the app store. Great. We can raise money on that. So it's kind of an interesting strategy where, you know, I think it's, if you're like a first-time person, there there are some benefits to going and saying, "Look, I'm going to get, i have 20 conversations. I'm going to get one lead investor, and then I'll be done with it for the year, right? Or for the next 18 to 24 months. And that one investor will be very hands-on with me and teach me a lot of things. from For me, you know, given that I've done this before, I was less interested in having that singular voice from one investor. And I really wanted us to build a big coalition of of people, like a diversity of perspectives and and network and stuff like that. And so it's been very helpful for us to kind of like at each flesher point, be like, okay, what types of folks could we use on the team, quote unquote, now, right? And so, you know, I actually think a lot of people really don't, you know, again, it's like this mini game. And I think a lot of founders don't really like the fundraising mini game. I love it because it's one of the rare times you can get smart people to give you honest feedback. Right. Because in most like the biggest problem, I think early stage is your friends are going to be like, you know, your friends aren't there to basically take a big dump on your idea. Right. <laughs> you know, they're there to just to kind of build you up and you, you need that support network. But you do need people that will poke holes in your plan. That's part of the value of joining a thing like Combinator, Right. You're like even if you don't get in, you generally will get some. they would give they give everyone some feedback and poke holes in your plan. And you can even tell in the interview where they're poking holes. And so like getting the attention of smart people to poke holes in your plan, in your product, in your business is I think one of the most important things you can do. And so fundraising is a great process for that. There's always a phrase that said like, ask for money, get advice, ask for advice, get money. And so I never lead with like, we're looking, you know, I never go into an investing conversation saying, I'm looking for your money. I'm always going into saying like, I'm curious what you think of what we're doing. And genuinely that's honest, like I am, right? Like some people, you know, they have issues that you're there, but a lot of times like, I think what you're doing is great. Here's some money, right? So it's an interesting, unintuitive way to think about that.
1: That, that is really good advice and getting the people that will shoot you straight, especially in the early days as you're looking to get traction and product market fit, that is so valuable. So the product in its current state is free. Can you talk about like, what is the goal going forward to potentially monetize and like, what that looks like. Like with SaaS, there's so many, it's like a, a freemium model. Do you immediately like, put up a paid version? Is it price-based off of features or usage? What are you all thinking through right now as you like go to the world of, of profitability?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. User is a similar playbook to the one I ran at UserVoice, which is also a B2B company, where we, for the first year, were completely free at User Voice And we had really good growth. An interesting story is as soon as we put up a pricing page on our website, even though we still had a free plan. This is on user voice. As soon as we put up a pricing page, we lost, I think, 50% of our signups overnight. And so I think there's a, especially when you're getting going, right? I, I like to kind of decouple the, let's prove that people will use this and continue to use this and rave about it and share it with the, let's continue to, let's prove that people will pay money for it. Now, this is this is countered to what like YC advice. would YC standard advice would be, No, no, you should be charging for it immediately, like early on, because you need to figure out, you know, because there are are things where people will use it, but they never pay you money for it. And so you'll get this like false positive. But we're going into a space where we're compete. There's kind of incumbents at the more mid-market enterprise level where they've set a very high price point for tools like ours. So we don't feel like there's a risk that people won't pay for this, right? In fact, we actually get a lot of people being like, when, are you, when can I start paying you for this, right? Like, which is a good sign. But I do think it's very valuable in the beginning to have this like, you know, monetization is hard, right? And you should think about it early on. But to try to like grow and monetize at the same time, like we've, it's hard enough just to grow. We've probably spent a third of our engineering cycles over the last year, not just post-launch, but the last year on onboarding, right? Like constantly improving our onboarding process. And think about the, you know, that's hard enough as it is. Imagine the friction of, Choose a pricing plan, figure out what the pricing model is. I think doing that before we have a bunch of users is counterproductive, and it's also like one of these things where if you look at the total addressable market, you know we have thousands of users today how many what's how many people could we eventually have? We could have eventually have like hundreds of thousands of users so am I worried about like not monetizing the first point 0.1 to 03 percent of the the market? Not at all, right? I think it's also a good trade for those users right you're You want to get an early base of advocates, and no better way to do that than by giving someone something that's very valuable to them for free. So, we are thinking about monetization. There's a lot of different ways we're, we're thinking about it. I mean, it is a challenging question, but I think we're thinking about it for something once we've to do, once we've kind of figured out the, yeah, once we get growth in the direction we want it to go. I also would say, from an investing perspective, this is a bit of a hack too, because monetization always slows down growth, right? And so, I feel like often early on, I see people monetize and try to grow. And then they come to investors and they've got mediocre growth, mediocre monetization. I'd much rather have like high growth and no monetization. And when they ask about monetization, you say like, well, we're going to do it later, right? Rather than, you know, you know, I've got data, but the data's not very good. Ignore it, right? And so these are hard problems. You should do them in serial, not necessarily in parallel.
1: That is really good advice. Okay, I... I've got to ask a question around fundraising because you mentioned something you like and you seem very good at it. What advice would you give to founders that have a product, they have some traction, and in three months or whatever timeframe, they're going to raise money? Like, What are the things they should be thinking about to raise money the right way? Because you've clearly like done this well from past companies to, to this current one.
0: I mean, it really depends. I mean, the the hardest problem in the fundraising process is not telling your story, right? You should know your story, you should know your product, you should know your metrics, right? And that's, and that's all stuff really within your locus of control. The hardest thing about it is, how do I get in front of the right people? Right? How do I get in front of people that are doing this? And how do I overcome the cold start problem of like, how do I get the first money in? Right? Because It gets easier. It gets, you know, once you're two thirds committed, it gets super easy compared to when you're like, we're raising a million and we've got zero. And again, you know, I think that this is the number one use case, especially for first time founders, right? Who haven't raised money before for why you go join a Y Combinator or some other kind of, you know, incubator program is that program gives you some of that social proof you don't have on your own. Right. You know, and so that's, that's, one of the and, and that's super valuable because it's really hard to do, right? This time around, it's a little bit easier. I've done a company. I've done, you know, I worked with Justin, Ammon and Kiko. I did, you know, user voice for about ten years. We went from like zero to close to like ten million in revenue. So it's much easier for me now to just raise on reputation that most folks won't have if it's your first time around, your first rodeo, right? So, but I think you really have to lean on your reputation. There are people like you know, even if you haven't done startups you've certainly done something, right? And you go back to your network. And again, you're looking for advice, right? Not necessarily money. You go back to the people that have been your biggest advocates in your career and you tell them what you're doing. And you, you know, do you know anyone I should be talking to, right? Who knows, that might turn into investor leads, right? That may turn into them saying like, I really believe in you, I wanna put some money in, right? Sort of thing. Again, some of this is like, depends on how fortunate you are to have rich people in your, in your career orbit. But again, I think, you know, it's a tough challenge, right? So if you don't have the network, You've got to go find a way to like glom onto someone else's network. And so, good news is there's more money chasing companies today now than ever. There's, you know, lots of opportunities out there. So, you know, don't fret.
1: Yeah. And I think that's good advice on whether it's YC or Techstars or any accelerator. Just it could be binary. This is going to work or not. So, set yourself up for success. Get those signals to investors that, you know, this could be something special. And it's really interesting you talk about maybe don't split between monetization and growth, choose one and go big on it because you want to show that narrative for growth. And that kind of leads to my question. You talked about how onboarding is so important because I think we're all guilty of like you want to make this amazing, perfect product. But the truth is you need to really focus on onboarding or the, that first impression Because that could make or break even getting people into the product. If that's optimizing for a magic moment or optimizing for this use case that wows people, like, holy crap, I can take these clips and send it to my dev team automatically. Like, can you talk about any advice or things you've worked through as you've been trying to perfect onboarding for something that isn't maybe the easiest thing? Because it's got a hook into Zoom and it's in this marketplace. And what are some things that are working or not working as you're trying to make onboarding flawless?
0: Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, there's this interesting trade-off as, you know, you generally, hopefully, are like one of the power users of your own product, right? Or at least in my case, I, I have been in, in all these cases. And, you know, the problem is you start off with a very simple product and then you build it up and it's perfect for you. But that's because it's been kind of slowly, you know, boiling the frog. It's been slowly adding on features to you. But now there's this big chasm that new users have to jump over to get to this power user phase. And I think... I think onboarding is like one of the top areas I see people underinvest in. It's, it's hilarious. One of the things there, you know, there's a number of times I always get asked, you know, how do you think about fathom versus your competitors? Uh, a lot of investors be like, you know, there's a lot of people seem like they're doing something similar to this. And I'd be like, yes, have you tried those products? You know, and actually surprisingly, a lot of times people would be like, no, I haven't, I haven't signed up for any of these. I was like, go, go take you know, half an hour, sign up for all of them and then come back to me and tell me you're still worried about this problem. Because what, you know, a ton of folks just don't invest enough in onboarding. And really, you know, you've got to get someone to an aha moment, a magic moment very quickly. Um, I think one of the, you know, one of the things we had to do was because you use our call on Zoom, what we found early on is everyone like gets the fathom app. And then the first thing they try to do is do a test call, try to grab a colleague and try to say, like, can you like, how do I, I want to play around with this. Right. But stuff, because, you're supposed to use this on a call with your customers, but no one wants to use a product for the first time, right on some call, important call with their customers. So we actually did a lot of engineering to basically be able to, you can start a test call where you join a meeting and then we actually send like a bot that has a pre-recorded video. And like so you go to a meeting, it's like you're having a meeting, but you're having a meeting with like a ver- person from our team that's pre-recorded, but then you can kind of feel out what the fathom experience is like. And that took a lot of engineering but it actually was a massive difference people would be like, oh my gosh, now I don't have to go find a colleague to have this call with. Right. And it like greatly increased our like onboarding conversion rate. The last thing I'll say about that though, is that like one of the other biases I have in building product is building for things that are magical rather than things that require diligence. There's a lot of products you can build where like the user gets out what roughly what they put in. Right. And you know, task management software is a great example of this there's a thousand of these project products right because your task manager is only as good as the diligence and that you put into that product and i think that also makes onboarding very difficult because you're asking the user to to do a bunch of work to put stuff in and to visualize the future to get some benefit so i always think about like what are like the things you can do in your product that humans can't do. You're not just enforcing a workflow on a human with some like software. You're actually fundamentally doing something that only software can do, right? Like you as a human cannot record your zoom call and transcribe it in real time. Well, I guess you could try to, I've seen some people try to like actually literally try to write down everywhere that said you could try that, but you're just not going to. Right. And so like being able to like show you jump on a call, click a button within five seconds after the call, you've got this huge, like basically, you know, recording transcript highlights, you know, that to people are like, holy cow, like that blows people's mind. So optimize for onboarding that like, you know, and, and realize it's going to be an ongoing investment. You're almost never going to be done with it because every time you change the product, you have to rethink, okay, what is the most important stuff I have to teach people in the onboarding process? And then generally onboarding ends after they're set up, right? So for our app, we've been, we have we keep shifting. Here's like the three things I need you to do while I have your attention before I give you access to the app. Because that's the one leverage you have over users is, you know, they want to get access to your app. <clears throat> now, how much leverage you have may vary on how excited they are. So, but if you put a bunch of stuff, recently we had way too many things in the onboarding process. We saw people drop off Right, really had too many steps. So we took a bunch of stuff out. That doesn't mean it's not part of onboarding. It just means it's part of like setup. Now we're moving into follow-up emails, in-app prompts. We have a gamification system to encourage you to like set up more of the app. So we really try to figure out the line of like, What is what you absolutely need to know and have to use this product? And then what are the like nice to haves and how do we like kind of like nurture you along the nice to have path so that you become a power user over a week to two weeks?
1: Wow, that um, that should be like an onboarding call in itself. That was really helpful because I've I've heard this idea of a magic moment. But I love how you laid it out because that is annoying. Like you get out what you put in. You want to be able to effortlessly have people just be amazed with the experience. And that's a really good call out on you see people struggling like, hey, will you jump on the Zoom with me so I can test this? The, the fact you guys that were that proactive to create that onboarding experience, it shows you are just relentless with the product, but that's, that's pretty, pretty sharp. Well, nice. So, you know, you could probably talk for days too, not just on fathom, but on user voice, but I mean, you've done user voice for so long. I, I won't make you go down that path, but I'm interested to see if you could tell people what user voice is. And then if you could think through one experience or story over that, that long run, that other founders could learn because it, it's pretty impressive what you've built there and you've successfully had another CEO run it. But I um, would love to hear more about that experience.
0: Yeah, UserVoice was, it's funny, every, I realized recently that every company I have, I've I've started, basically solved a problem with the previous company. So UserVoice solved a problem that I had working with Justin M and Y Combinator, which was, we had a bunch of users and we like, very quickly overwhelmed by with e- like feedback emails. It should do this. It should do that. Right, like, and we used I used to spend a couple hours a day just shifting through those to go back to the team and be like, "Hey, here's the <laughs> top things I'm hearing from from our users." Right, and I remember we were doing an online calendar product, and I remember you know at one point we had this like hour long argument about like time zone support in the calendar, and at one point Emmett, now the CEO of Twitch, was like. Why don't we just ask those users if this is the top thing you hear, say we're hearing? This must be hundreds of people. Let's go back and ask them do they want solution A or B? And I say, Emmett, that is a genius idea. But I spent three hours a day just to tell you this is the top thing. I don't have a spreadsheet of like everyone that wants it. And so it's funny because user voice, we were at the time, remember I told you we were in Boston, we were working out of the office with Reddit. And so user voice really was like Reddit for product feedback. You basically could set up this whole forum. People could submit their feedback and vote up other people's feedback. And so we're probably most famous early doing that, but you're seeing the little feedback tabs on the side of websites where it's just like feedback in red. Like we invented that basically. And, we, and that was an onboarding problem we saw, right? We, that was one of our onboarding problems. People set up this user voice website to collect feedback, and then they never promote it to their users that they're looking for feedback. It's like, you know what we'll do? We'll give them a little widget to put on their homepage. It says in red, give us your feedback. And that actually worked really well. So yeah, ran that company for 12 years from, like I said, from, from nothing to close to 10 million in revenue. And, you know, the first year of user voice couldn't look more different than the first user year of Fathom, right? Like the <laughs> first year of user voice, like we've got, you know, our, it's the team is whoever I could trick into working with me, right? It wasn't like a bunch of, you know, my best engineers. Fundraising was painful. Like the number of times we got rug pulled on, someone's going to put the money in and then they don't it looked completely different. I mean, it was basically like, uh, yeah, I think the, the quintessential user voice first year moment was there were three co-founders. We were all living in this like compound on like the West side of Santa Cruz. The one guy lived with his wife and his two kids in the front and me and the other single life founder lived in like the in-law unit in the back. And it was literally one of those moments where like, we fell asleep with our computers on our laps. And then like, we woke up and we kept going. Right. And I remember distinctly we used to ride the bus. We had an office. We got downtown Santa Cruz. We chose Santa Cruz because of those living in San Francisco. Santa Cruz was way less distracting, right? I think this is also something that uh, founders don't optimize for is you really need to put yourself into like an isolation chamber and work on your company. Now, I don't, don't isolate yourself from like your target users and your target buyers, <laughs> but isolate yourself from like, you know, the cocktail parties and the, you know, whatever, baby showers and whatnot. So Santa Cruz was great for that. There's nothing else to do. And so I remember we would ride the bus, you know, every day. We a bus like 20 minutes to our office downtown. And I remember, I don't know, probably a couple months after we left, one of the co-founders was like, I miss seeing the beach on the way to the office. And I was like, when did we see the beach on the way to the office? He's like, well, from the bus, it went by the beach. I think like, it went by the beach? Because the whole time I was on my laptop, the entire bus ride. I'd never even noticed that we went by the beach. So, like. You know that that was a very different, like you know, that was a very you know typical early stage, like first time out, hustling. You know, I think at one point I was like couch surfing. I didn't have a house. I just like lived out of my car. Like very different experience than the fathom experience. So
1: one one question around being in the early days of YC, being in the same office with the Reddit guys, there there's a lot of impressive leaders that you're surrounded with from. Paul Graham, to Justin Kahn, to Alexis O'Hannon. What are some things, any stories or things you're learning from the the people in those rooms?
0: I mean, what's the, what's that phrase? It's like, you're the you're the average of your friends or something like that. I don't know what that, I'm, I'm butchering that. But yeah, I think I was very fortunate in that, you know, really got to know well Justin and Emmett, who, who are both incredible thinkers. I mean, Justin is an amazing marketer. Also interesting, like, I, you know, I know you're, audience maybe is not i don't know what percentage of your audience is technical but what i thought was also impressive about justin was for the first company for kiko right he actually learned how to program he was not a programmer he did not get a comp, comp sci degree like Emmett and i did but he learned how to program and i think that's also something that's a huge testament to like early stage you've got to, you can't expect someone to come in a late night and figure stuff out but yeah i mean there was a there was a phase you know i met those guys Steve Huffman from Reddit and all those guys up in Boston and then moved out to California, you know, around about 2006 with a lot of these folks. And, you know, looking back now, it's hilarious. We were, everyone was basically in one apartment building in like North Beach in San Francisco. And it was like the founders of Twitch, the founders of Reddit, the founders of Dropbox, the founders of uh, Weebly, the founders of like, and I I could do this for another, like There's literally like multi billions of dollars of future value in that startup. And, you know, it, it's been fantastic. I'm still friends with all of those folks. It's my closest network. And in some ways, it's really, again, it's really nice to have a people, you all came up together. You've got a, a lot of good war stories, but there are also people you can just trust. Because I think that's also ch- a challenge I hear from people is like, I don't know, especially as you become more successful, who I can trust, right? Who I can really lean on to give me a lot of feedback, right? When I'm not fundraising, if you will, right? So, you know, that's that, that goes back to the power of being inclusive, finding ways to like, build a community around you or join a community.
1: Totally agree. Especially when you're starting something, having other people you can confide in not just when times are good,
0: but when it's tough. It, it's also very humbling. And also like these companies that all seem now like wild success stories did not always seem like wild success stories. Like, if, like Twitch was originally Justin TV. And if you ever, my buddy Justin has a, a podcast called the quest. It was actually being great. Cause it's like, I there's some stories in there I'd even know. And I was like there during some of these things, but like, Twitch is a is a huge success. At some point, it was like it had I think a couple months to live. Justin TV, and it was like it almost died m- multiple years in, even with million dollars revenue. Reddit, right? Reddit for you know they sold Reddit early. There was a while where Reddit was many many years where Reddit was Steve, a few other engineers and, and working out of Condé Nast office and it's like a little corner office they like shunted them into, and it, until like yeah dig fell on and the sword randomly one day and all of a sudden great reddit's now anointed like you know there's a lot of other stuff that happened but it really gives you a lot of humility that there's a lot of things we thought were stupid ideas right like honestly i think even you know even justin tv ideas seem like a stupid idea i i actually got invited to join them as a a design co-founders like there's not a design problem here also i think this is kind of a dumb idea it just goes to show you don't know right because some of the, the things that seem like the dumbest ideas had really strong teams, and they eventually figured out something that was a smart idea. And so I think that's also the, it's that level of humility. And honestly, like, you know, still gives you some hope that like, okay, like I, I am not the average of my friends. I'm actually the least successful person in my friend group, but you know, who knows, right? I've seen fortunes change very, very quickly
1: that's really good context yeah because it's easy to look as a back as a Monday morning quarterback like oh they're always going to be a success story but when you're in the thick of it it's cloudy and who who knows
0: I mean things that looked like a slam dunk in the early stage died and things that look like yeah it's like it's like I think I'd be a terrible VC I don't know how you can (laughs) tell, right to a certain degree like it's hard yeah yeah
1: I I agree I would not be strong at that either so so two more questions that I have for you. One is you have your finger on the pulse being a part of so many founders that are doing interesting things. What are obviously you're very focused on Fathom. What are some other half-baked startup ideas you have or you wish would exist that you're like, I'm in the back of your mind, you're waiting for that thing to happen. You're like, okay, this would be my next thing.
0: Oh gosh. I, I okay, I could tell you the one that pops to mind. I'm not sure it's a good business. Like I'm even unsure I even pull it off, but I know it's something that like I talk about with other people all the time, which is a real reputational system. Because LinkedIn is not a real reputational system, and what I mean by that is one of the hardest things, not at the early stage, but kind of at the mid stage of the company, is bringing in managers and executives and whatnot. And it's really hard to tell with anyone that's not in a creative role, right? Like if I have a designer or an engineer, I can look at their code, I can look at like their portfolio. But when you get people in, in marketing and sales and whatever, and you pull them out of companies, and they're generally, at the, you know, those folks don't generally come in at the ground floor. They come in at larger companies. It's really hard to tease out did this person have, was this person the reason this thing was successful? Or is this person kind of like off the ride? Was this person a good manager? Was this person a tyrant? Like, this is one of the hardest, like, mid level skills is figuring out how to, like, reference check and suss out these things. And I just, so partially from that problem, and partially because if you're familiar with the, the Enneagram, I'm a number one, which means I'm like a perfectionist slash kind of like justice person. And there's the one thing I have seen 15 years talking about is Like there's some things that like people get away with that I don't I don't want them to get away. with. So I really wish someone could build an actual reputational system um, where you could give feedback on people, positive and negative, because you can't do the latter on LinkedIn at all so that you could actually try to figure out, you know, OK, here's yeah, this person is a great hire. This person's not. There are so many issues with that. Like so many like legal liability and libel issues. I don't even know how you get around it. But like if you could, and even if you just did it for a narrow segment of the audience, if you said this is an invite only tool for like executive search, like you could make, you know, a recruiter on executive hire often makes like 25 to a hundred K per hire. So just think about, and most of what they're trying to do is, Find you the person that has a good reputation, right? That knows what they're doing. So if you could disrupt that market and do it for half the price, hell, if you did it well, you probably actually charge two to three x, right? And you're like we are, we we actually have the right data, right? And that's I think you know a lot of what some recruiters are doing, kind of organically is they have that right data. But that's the one thing that's like stuck in my craws, like. I wish I, I hope this launches. Like I hope this comes out of nowhere and surprises me. And someone launches this next week. I would I would be so overjoyed.
1: I, I love that for two reasons. One, I love any idea where you can find a line item of an income statement that there's already money allotted for this. Like we, adv- yep. I was advised this one company we did the CEO search. And what these CEO executive headhunters charge, I was about to like switch careers. I was like, this <laughs> yeah, is yeah. insane. And ha- having a tool like that one will let them do their job better or you disrupt it and you could do that. The, the other thing that's nice is I love ideas that, tra- that solve a real problem. Like even right now, we're about to make this higher and we're doing reference checks and it's all virtual. And we're like, we think this person seems like a delightful human being, but... We'll find out in three months if this is, if this worked out or not. But no, that that that's a good one. Yeah, maybe, maybe that can be after you sell a, a Fathom or an IPOs. That that can be the next one. So there you go.
0: Hopefully, I hope I hope someone else listening to this solves it before then. It might be a while. I hope you get to <laughs> yes, it. Yes, let you be a
1: beta user. Um, I like the idea of having it for a specific segment. Probably going um, more premium with executives or something is, is a smart move
0: want to get into like doing I don't think you want to get into doing this problem at scale right? Like, I don't yeah think th- there's also some real dystopian ways you could go at scale too. <laughs> careful about that too right like
1: um, nice and one question I always like to end with is what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career
0: I mean it probably comes back to full circle that first story right that probably the nicest thing was was Justin and Emmett I'm not sure who who read the original email. not being like yeah F off, right? <laughs> like, you know, I think it'd be really easy if someone someone cold emailed you and was like, your product sucks, you know, hey, bro. I don't know that I would have read to the end of that, right? To see where that email was going. So like, you know, I, I am really forever grateful to to those two for, for giving me that opportunity. And I, you know, I honestly, I think that is the ethos of, I, I'm going to say Silicon Valley, but I mean that not, it's not a place really in my mind. It's a mentality. The ethos of startup land, which is, I feel like people trip over themselves to help be helpful to other people, which I as I talk to more people in other other like industries, I've realized how unique and special that is. Right. Even like, you know, I, I have people all the time, even back in the day, who would you know, they probably got nothing out of taking a call with me, but they would take a call with me because someone took a call with them. Right. And so I I think there's like this very like pay it forward type mentality. But yeah, Justin and Emmett, I think, you know, gave me this really changed the trajectory of my career and also my life. And so that is easily the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me career wise.
1: Yeah, that's a great story. And very nice. I didn't mark you as spam or anything. So very, very (laughs) cool. Well, well, Richard, this has been super fun, man. Where can we point people to learn more about you or Fathom or try and get free access to it? Yeah,
0: if you want to check out Fathom, go to fathom.video/pod. So I mentioned there's like a big wait list. But if you go to that link, you will skip the wait list. And then, you know, check it out. Let me know what you think. I'm not much of a, of a Twitter person, so I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Mention you heard me on the podcast. I'd love any feedback you have. Well, let me know what you think of the onboarding process. It always could be better or what you think of the product. <laughs> I, love, I love any and all feedback. So looking forward to hearing from you.
1: Awesome. Well, this was a blast. And thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. After working with over hundred startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growth Hit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com.